Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 346 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. My guest today is Mark Miller. He is the vice president of high performance leadership at Chick-fil-A. We talk all about team recruitment and uh, how you spread culture and so much more. He spent several decades now at Chick-fil-A. And today's episode is brought to you by Financial Peace University. If you want to help people through their financial stress, just text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33789 to get started for free. And it's brought to you by Promedia Fire. You can book a free digital strategy session today with Promedia Fire by going to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Well, guys, I'm so glad that you're tuning in today. And uh, thanks again for the uh, incredible support and encouragement you've given Uh, I want to talk today at the very end of the show during our What I'm Thinking About segment, just about uh, what's happening right now. Uh, And remember, we record this in advance, but uh, with racial reconciliation, I've got some thoughts on that, particularly as a Caucasian leader. What can we do to help? Uh, What are some of the fears around that? And then how can you actually make a difference? That's what I want to talk to you about at the end of the show today. So, uh, hey, you know, there's a lot of stress right now. And financial stress, as you know, is stress. And what do you do about it? So why don't you help people? So many people have lost jobs. Um, You know, you may want to make a difference in your community. You're wondering how to do that. Uh, They're staring at an empty bank account. They've got a house full of kids to feed and they don't know when this crisis will end. Well, you can help others right now by leading a virtual Financial Peace University class. This is the first time ever in the last few months that Financial Peace University has gone virtual. And now you can bring the proven plan that's helped nearly 6 million people stop worrying about money to the people you care about, to your church, to your business, to your employees, to whoever, to your neighborhood. Class is totally free to lead and it's all done through video chat, kind of like Zoom. And right now, our friends at Ramsey Solution are offering a free webinar where you can learn all about leading a Financial Peace University class. So when you register for the webinar, you will also be entered to win a collection of Ramsey books worth over $250. If you want to help people leave money stress behind for good, register for the free webinar by texting CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33789. That's CAREY to 33789. And there is also, in case you haven't noticed, a disruption happening in the church space right now. And as people are slowly figuring out, things are not going back to normal. So how do you navigate the digital shift? Well, you probably need a partner. And that's what ProMedia Fire can be with their new church growth program. The church growth program provides your church with a digital coach, creative team, and web team. Also, get this, a social team, all for less than the cost of a staff hire. So you get this entire team of professionals providing digital strategy and a creative framework to help your church grow online. And if you think online was temporary, mm -mm, it's not. So if you want to book your free strategy session, go to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. That's promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Well, I'm so excited to have Mark Miller on. We did this episode, gosh, I'm going to say like in 2019. Yeah. And we're finally bringing it to you. It was going to air in the spring, but you know how that went uh, as we pivoted. 
Mark is brilliant. He started his Chick-fil-A career working as an hourly team member back in 1977. He's been there for the whole ride. When they have grown under his tenure from 75 restaurants to over 2,400 locations with tens of billions of dollars in revenue. Incredible. He began writing almost 20 years ago when he co-authored his first book with Ken Blanchard. His latest book, Win Every Day, was released a few months ago. And uh, Mark is a sought-after speaker for leaders as well. And I'm so thrilled to have this conversation. I'm fascinated by Chick-fil-A culture. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Mark Miller. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kerry. Hey, it is great to have you. So, Chick-fil-A, it's been, uh, while we're recording this, you have been at Chick-fil-A for 40 years this week. That's correct. It's pretty incredible. That's not counting my time in the restaurant, which preceded that. So it's it's been over 40 years. Really? So you started when you were four? Exactly. <laughs> that's, exactly. That's how it worked, right? Uh, and it went from local favorite. You were employee number 16 at Chick-fil-A? Uh, here corporately, that's correct. Wow. So employee number 16, and it's gone from a local favorite restaurant to a regional to a national chain and now international. Yes. I was in on some of the first meetings on expansion into Canada, and you're in other places around the world. Um, that is really fascinating. I'd love to start with you because you've got pretty much the whole panacea of Chick-fil-A. What were some of the turning points? Like there are certain things you do as a leader that are just like, yep, once that happened, that was a major breakthrough. I'd look to, like to look at the ones that in particular gave disproportionate returns. Like, you know, you, you look back and it's an inflection point. Well, I think the very first and most significant of those points was the model that Truett conceived back in the 60s. I mean, this is, of course, after the invention of the chicken sandwich. Right. You realize right. There, there was no chicken sandwich until Truett that's Cathy invented that. That's hard to believe because that. people say, okay, you know, you invented the chicken sandwich, but that's an actual thing, is it? That is an actual thing. And he began selling it in a short order grill that he operated, that he and his brother opened in 1946. The story he would tell is that it took too long to cook the chicken with the bone in it. So he began experimenting how to cook it more quickly and realized that if he took the bone out and cooked it under pressure, he could cook it much faster. And so that like boneless, skinless chicken, which we take for granted right. now, was not a thing either. That was not a thing. And then really? I met a gentleman several years ago who told me the chicken sandwich was his idea. And I said, tell me more <laughs> about that. And he said, well, I was one of Truett's regular customers, and he served me the uh, chicken breast— uh -huh. And it was delicious. And I said, Truett, next time I come in here, I want to eat that on a bun. And so maybe that's local legend, but this gentleman said it so was he, his idea. And, and so, Truett isn't here anymore. That's to, right. So that was the early 60s. That. that was in the yeah. early 60s. So that was the first inflection point. But I think um, the but model— But wait, didn't, hadn't that restaurant been around? Since 46. Okay, so from 1946 to when? In the early 60s. Wow. So he's been doing this for almost two decades. Long time. Wow. Very long. Okay. Long time. And uh, much of that time on his own because his brother passed away in a plane crash. And so they had opened it together. But Truett ended up running the restaurant himself. And um, and he understood the restaurant business. You yeah. Know, he, he even had a room next door that he rented and he could hear traffic on the gravel parking lot. And he'd know to get up because it's a 24-hour restaurant. He'd know they were busy and he'd get up and go help them. If he felt like there was a crowd gathering. Really? So he understood uh, hard work. 24-hour restaurant, get up, 
listen to the gravel in the driveway. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. so much hustle behind overnight successes. A lot of hustle. A lot wow. of hustle. But the inflection point, yeah. I referenced the model. Mm -hmm. Truett used to describe it this way. He said, a business needs two things to be successful. He would say capital and management. Right. But but the way he would articulate it, that you reduce your talent pool if you look for one person that has both. He said, so if we'll provide the capital, mm. the pool grows exponentially of men and women who would have the management. Today, we would talk about the leadership skills and competence. Wow. So I think that was the turning point. So he thought money was easier to raise than people. Or money, money. Yeah, was that it? No, or people were easier to raise than money. Well, I'm not, money. I'm not sure he That's would frame it that way. He would say if someone had a very high net worth, they may or may not want to run a restaurant. Run a restaurant. Fair enough. So let's get business people, men and women. The first operator was a woman who who want to be in business for themselves but not by themselves. Right. And he said, we'll remove the financial barrier and open this opportunity to, to countless entrepreneurial-minded leaders. And I think that's been our secret sauce from, from those early days is we have an extremely high-caliber leader in every restaurant. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what we find is those men and women tend to select really good people. And then, of course, that fuels the whole idea of excellence at the front lines because right. you've got great people. And I think that is... Other than the sandwich itself, the inflection point was when he said, "We're gonna, we're gonna find great leaders to operate these local restaurants." Hmm. And now, um, how have you personally kept up with all the change over the years? Because growing, you know, often people will say the people who got you here won't get you there, and I'm sure not everybody who was around from the early days have stayed. But here you are, four decades into this, and you've had to scale with the organization. That's not easy. I've been pedaling really, really hard. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. A mentor of mine uh, that some of your audience may have heard of, Dr. Howard Hendricks. Oh, yeah. Uh, who passed away probably five or six years ago. Um, he, he told me the story that changed his life was when one of his professors was justifying the fact that he studied all the time. Yeah. And Hendricks remembers the conversation when he said, but don't you have it figured out by now? Because you've been here for more than 20 years. And that professor said, I made a decision years ago that I would rather have my students drink from a running stream than a stagnant pool. Mm. And Howard phrase. told me, he said, that changed everything for him. And I would say that I have, to the best of my ability, made that same decision, that I want to be that running stream. And I'm going to have to just keep pedaling and keep learning and keep growing. And um, that, that's not my natural bent. That's not my mm -hmm. natural temperament. I know some people, if you think about strength finders, would, would have learning in their top five. Yeah, yeah. Learning's not in my top 79, I don't think. <laughs> but I act like a learner because I've chosen to be a learner because I believe that's an imperative. If if you want to right. lead well, um, you've you've got to be a learner. So how do you learn? How do you how do you do that? What are your disciplines? Well, I'm I'm predatory. I mean, it's it's a daily discipline. The way we say it is, your capacity to grow determines your capacity to lead. Mm. And so I'm I'm seeking out mentors. I'm going to conferences. I'm I'm reading or Audible. I'm trying to do a book a week, um, and. Chick-fil-A has helped, honestly, 
because I've been here a long time, but I've actually changed careers multiple times right. within the business. When you get a new career, you're looking straight up at a new learning curve. <laughs> yeah, that's and true. And so at that point, it becomes a survival mechanism that you get to learn a new discipline. And so between my personal habits that I've attempted to cultivate and the organization continuing to throw me into new things, um, I'm just on the journey. I'm just on the journey. Wow. What... Um so you mentioned a number of things there, like you actually attend conferences, which I talk to a lot of leaders who certainly are not leading at your level, and they feel like I should be teaching at conferences, but you still attend, notebook open, taking notes. Absolutely. And I, I teach at a conference from time to time. Of course. I'll, I'll g- try to go to several every year, and I put those on my calendar first, along with family vacations and personal yeah. commitments. It's kind of the old big rocks first. And then I schedule things around that because I think if if you're going to make learning and growing a priority, you have to make it a priority. Yeah. And and you can't say, I'll do it if I have time. I talk to leaders far too often that believe learning is extracurricular. Hmm. And I say learning is integral. Learning is central. I said, when you learn, you're better able to serve those you're attempting to lead. So you make that like part of your your weekly rhythm. It's part of my job. It's part part of of my daily. It's part of my well, it's part of my responsibility as a leader. And it's it's what enables me to add value in the future. And it it's just a non negotiable. No, Mark, I think that's a really interesting point because I think you're talking, you know, obviously to tens of thousands of really busy leaders who are like, Mark, let me show you my calendar. Okay. I'm just slammed with appointments. I got a message to write this weekend. I've got a talk I need to give. So I kind of try to bake my learning into evenings and weekends and the drive home on podcasts like this, or, you know, I'm listening to audio books while I'm working out. Uh, but you're like, no, actually make that part of your job. Is that well, what you're saying? Yes. And all those things, yeah, yeah, count. Yeah, all yeah. those things count. Uh, I was, I was intrigued 20 years ago or so, I, I ran across a book called Barbarians to Bureaucrats. Okay. I'll, I'll spare Great you the title. details. But uh, the guy who wrote the book took Toynbee's work, where he looked at the rise and fall of more than a dozen civilizations. Is that Arnold Toynbee? The yes. Historian? Toynbee, right. And so okay. this guy mapped that with the rise and fall of organizations. Oh, wow. Fascinating book. Wow. And many things stick with me from that. But one was he said, there is a sign that an organization or a civilization is beginning the downward turn. He said, it's when you apply yesterday's answers to today's questions. Oh, wow. And I, I don't, I'm not smart enough not to keep learning. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and the I'm way things you. are changing, yeah. the way the world is changing, the way the, the the customer expectations, the competition, technology, just the knowledge within the world, um, I don't I don't have enough stored up to mm. respond appropriately to the ever changing demands of the world. Are there when you look back at say the last ten or fifteen years, some I'll call them channels like hey you just better read I'm gonna pick one out of the air the Harvard Business Review just to to pick one or um, some books that you are just continually rereading or handing out to people that you work with? Like, are there some, what's near the top of your list as reliable channels uh, for your growth as a leader? Well, I might surprise you with the first one. What's that? And that's random 
forms of input. Okay. I actually encourage leaders to go to the magazine rack at the airport or Barnes and Noble and pick up magazines on topics that you have no interest in. <laughs> which people look at me like, are you kidding me? No, like cross-disciplinary learning. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, random. 100%. Random, random. cross-disciplinary learning. Because I often describe it like an artist who's putting paint on the palette. You can't paint with it if it's still in the tube, right? right? And so as you take these inputs, you can actually add paint to your palette that you can then use at some point in the future. So first, I tell people, don't get too locked into any channel. Hmm. Again, this this just fits my style and my approach is I want I want a, a wide knowledge of as many topics as possible. Now, as far as specific books are concerned, um, I'm, I'm trying to go through a lot of books and to, to always look for what are those new ideas? What are those insights? What, what are mm-hmm. additional paints on my palette that mm-hmm. I may use later? But to your specific question, um, the effective executive yeah. written that Drucker? 40 years ago, yeah. Drucker, it's still a classic. I, I would say it's the source of the Nile. I mean, if you go back mm-hmm. in that short little paperback book, He's got single chapters that other authors have built careers on, yeah. literally, yeah. literally. So that's that's a classic. It's certainly timeless. Uh, I will say that we've just launched some work that should be finished in 2022. We're trying to say if those were the principles and practices that made executives productive in the last half of that century, what are those principles and practices that will make leaders, senior leaders specifically, effective in the future. And so that's work we just commissioned. We'll have to talk more about that Well, later. I would love to hear more about that. We're on the front that. end yeah. of that. Wow. Um, another book that is a more recent book is Brendan Bruchard's book, High Performance Habits, Yeah, that I stumbled upon six months ago or so. And I think that's a fantastic book, and I've recommended it and giving it, given it to many people. Um, again, just off the top of my head, Necessary Endings by oh, Henry, Henry Cloud, Cloud, I think, is a I, classic. I recommend that so often. I've given away several thousand copies of that one. Wow. Um, Henry and I have had—he's a friend, and, and yeah. we've had some fascinating conversations. He actually believes that's what distinguishes the very best leaders from the rest of the leaders in the world. The are those that can figure out and have the courage and the, and the personal um, fortitude to do Necessary Endings. He hmm. says that's the difference maker. And perhaps I gravitate to it because I'm not really good at that. And organizationally, I'm not sure we're really good at that. And so uh, that's been a very helpful book for me. Do you want to just explain sort of the concept behind Necessary Endings? Because that would be, I think that's on my top 10 list too. And I recommend it all that I did just the other day. Well, Okay. And so where, where, how does that show up in your leadership well, as something that you have to reference regularly? Well, let, me, let me use the example I think he uses in that book uh-huh. is that of pruning. He yeah. said, have you ever seen a rose bush that has not been pruned? And he said they're actually quite ugly hmm. because the plant will produce more buds than it can actually nourish. And the parallel he makes for us as leaders in an organization or as individuals in our own lives, unless we're willing to prune some things, hmm. then we'll have more things started than we can actually feed. And it actually won't turn out pretty in the end. And so it's just a good constant reminder for me that there's some things that um, may not have as much value today as Mm -hmm. they had when they were started, or there may be things that still have value, but there's something waiting in the wings of even greater value. 
Yeah. And there's, there's only a finite amount of time, energy, and effort that we can bring to bear on any project, initiative, strategy, or tactic. So that's another one that's kind of on my top 10 list. One of the things uh, I've heard you say before is that sometimes in an organization, like this is a leadership podcast, but there could be 5,000 different definitions of leadership floating out there. And that was a challenge for you at Chick-fil-A is that, you know, you've been in leadership development now here for years, but like people in any organization can have different definitions of leadership. So talk about that. I'd love to know your definition of leadership, Mark. All right. Well, let me affirm uh, the assumption that question is built upon. When we really began to become strategic and very intentional about leadership development about 20 years ago, we discovered at that time there were over 6,000 published definitions of leadership. So, (laughs) So, yes, that was one of our challenges is that when you say leadership, everybody would not. And, and I would argue that most everyone has a definition of leadership. But if you've not done the hard work to forge a consensus, people will have different definitions. Yeah. And the problem we faced is we needed to accelerate leadership development. We, right. we needed more leaders in the moment, but we could see a day when we would need even more leaders. And the team that we assembled realized that the starting point for us, the the first barrier that we had to, to tackle was we need a common working definition. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people that's that's the first step in creating a leadership culture. It, it's not the end all, but right. you've got to define yeah, it. Yeah, if you're all working toward different ends then or right. different assumptions, right. that can be a challenge. Now, our definition uh, specifically, I like to think of it in terms of a picture. Okay. And we describe it like an iceberg. And so m- many of your listeners will remember fifth grade. I don't, but they tell me <laughs> they tell me that in fifth grade I studied yeah. icebergs. And you may recall that about 10% is above the waterline and about right. 90% is below. We think that's a perfect picture of leadership. Yeah. About 10% above are the skills of a leader, and the 90% below represents the character of the leader. Hmm. And that ends, if you accept that, that picture, it ends the debate, is it about leadership, is it about skills, or is it about character? We said leadership is about both. Right. Uh, Drucker actually said the quality of character won't make a leader, but the absence flaws the entire process. Mm-hmm. So he was on it 50 years ago. It's yeah, like, and you see that all over the headlines you got, today. You have yeah. to have both. And so once we embrace that as our picture, we made a strategic decision that we would select for leadership character, and we would train, educate, and develop on skills. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want candidates with skills, but if you've mm-hmm. got to teach someone, it's, it's preferable to teach them skills as opposed to transform and reclaim character. Yeah. Oh, it's possible. It's, it's messy. You say you've had multiple jobs here and obviously some opportunity when yes. you start with a very small organization. Why, why did you choose leadership? Why is that your lane? Well, I think leadership chose me. Um, I serve at the pleasure of the organization, and I have been asked to do many things over the years. I started our corporate communications group. I started our quality and customer satisfaction group. I started our operations services group and so forth and so on. I'm great at starting things. I'm not (laughs) sure that I can finish anything (laughs) or not. Um, And about 20 years ago, we, we had a real opportunity. I referenced it earlier. I don't know what what your listeners do, but when we have a problem to be solved or an opportunity to be seized, 
our first reaction is to put a leader on it. And we looked over our shoulder and our bench was not as strong as it needed to be. Because prior to that time, our process for leadership development had largely been immersion and osmosis. Right. Just stay around here long enough, you'll figure it out. Well, and you you hope and you believe that aspiring leaders, emerging leaders, those paying attention will catch on. Hmm. And I would say at a certain scope, scale, volume, and complexity, that might work. I sat around a table with 15 other men and women, some of them world-class leaders. And I paid attention, and I learned some things. But by the time we got to the year 2000, we had thousands of people who had never sat around the table with some of those world-class leaders. And our process had been outpaced by the growth of the business, and that'll only last so long. You're you're not going to outgrow your leadership capacity. And so I was asked by the organization to to help solve this problem, and um, it's, it's a journey I've been on ever since. How, how did you even start to solve that? Because this will resonate with a lot of organizations. A lot of, you know, sometimes the challenge is, oh my goodness, we're not growing. We better put the paddles on this and figure out how to grow it. But I talk to a lot of leaders who say the biggest restriction on our growth is not money. It's not interest. It's not curiosity. It's the ability, it's not market. It's the ability to actually launch new locations. And what's holding us back right now is we don't have enough leaders. We just, you talk to pastors, they don't have enough campus pastors. They don't have enough senior leadership. You talk to business leaders. It's like, we could franchise this. I just can't, here's the complaint. Just can't find the right people. And you can't hire them fast enough either. And you're you're a fan of developing talent rather than buying it, right? Well, I like actually a combination, but mm-hmm. I don't think you stop developing the talent you hire. So right, I think you're right, always right, right. in the leadership yeah. development yeah. business. It's just what's your starting point. So how did you figure that out? When you Like, where did you start? Well, I didn't. I put together a team of really smart people <laughs> yeah. and said, hey, guess what we get to figure out? And as I mentioned earlier, our first step was to say, what's our working definition? And, mm. and, and we decided that we would articulate those skills. And it was actually my first book. Ken Blanchard found out about our work, and I had the uh, unspeakable opportunity to co-author a book with Ken Blanchard, which was phenomenal. And that's a book called The Secret. And in mm. it, we talk about our working definition, those skills of leadership. So that was our starting point, And we naively thought we were done. I mean, let me speak for myself. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to project. Yeah. But, but I thought, okay, we can go back to selling chicken now because we've right. told everybody what, what leadership looks like. And specifically, we told them what leaders do. They see the future. They engage and develop others. They reinvent continuously. They value results in relationships, and they embody the values. Mm. And by the way, that spells serve because that's the secret. Mm. Great leaders are always serving leaders as opposed to self-serving. They are compelled by the unshakable desire to serve others. That's what the best, that, that's what the best leaders uh, have at their heart. But they have to have those strategic ways. It's not just washing your car and walking your dog. You, right. There are strategic ways that great leaders lead. And so that's the work we did initially. I felt like we were done. Ken approached us and said, hey, let's do this book. And after a lot of debate, we decided, okay, let, let's do. You know, Maybe it'll serve the world is actually the, the decision that came from our senior leadership team. None of us knew that book would end up in 25 languages. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of been crazy. But we, we thought we were done. Let's go back and sell chicken. And it wasn't long until people started calling 
from the outside and people on the inside started approaching me saying, what's next? And I said, what do you mean, what's next? (laughs) And they said, well, okay, we got the definition. What do we do now? And it was really that question, like what's next, that helped us on this this journey to create a leadership culture. Because I say there's something every organization needs more than leadership. They need a leadership culture. And that's a place where leaders are routinely and systematically developed and you have a surplus. Hmm. And the surplus, people think, well, that's wasteful. I said, no, that surplus becomes your bench and a signal that it's working. Yes. If, you, if yeah. you're always behind, I would say you don't have a fully orbed leadership culture. This is this is like you know, I know multiple books and and decades in the making. But what are some keys to creating that kind of bench, that leadership culture? What have been again some inflection points that you're like, okay, when we started paying attention to this, it really made a difference. Okay, uh, I'll give a couple. We we ended up writing about this. It's called Leaders Made Here. Right. And so, how do you build a leadership culture? But you have to define it. It has to start there. And I tell organizations, define it could be to use. John Maxwell's definition or Andy Stanley's definition or my definition. Mm-hmm. or I, But you, you need your organization to agree. Create your own. What, what, but people need to know what are the behaviors that we value as an organization? What constitutes effective leadership in this context? So you have to deci- define it. Second, you have to teach it. Yeah. Because to have a definition, so let's say see the future. Right. And you explain to somebody that that's really about vision. And you think we're done. Well, then people go, well, how do you find a vision? How do you communicate vision? How do you turn vision into reality? Right. So there, there's a teaching component. After you've defined it, you have to teach it to people. Right. Third, you have to allow them to practice it. Hmm. We believe, and it's not us, the, the research on this has been clear for decades that most leaders know most of what they know about leading through the experience of leading. I mean, it's still helpful to know the three keys to delegation because right. you'll, you'll be more successful more quickly than if you start without a clue, but you really learn about leading by leading. And so we're having to to ask ourselves over and over and over again when there's an opportunity to be seized or a problem to be solved, if we're not careful, our first instinct is to put a seasoned leader on it because hmm. that's safe or safer. But there are many opportunities where you could ask an emerging leader, an aspiring leader, a developing leader to take an assignment so that they could actually practice and grow their leadership. Yeah. How do you, because this is an active debate with a lot of leaders, when you put a rookie leader, an aspiring leader, developing leader into a role, how do you protect the brand while developing them? It's it's a problem for a lot of people. It's like, well, the reason we're going to put a seasoned person on is it has to be done with excellence. So how, how have you learned to draw that line? Well, I think more? it's situational. Yeah. I think there yeah. are times that you are going – I use the, the sports example. If it's the World Series in the bottom of the ninth inning and you got to put a pinch hitter up there, you're going to put the 300 hitter up there. Yeah, yeah. But if it's June – and you're eight games out of first place, then let the let the guy who's batting 125 feel the pressure of that ninth inning bases loaded. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it matters. I think yeah. you've got to you've got to weigh the potential consequences. 
You've got to weigh the cost of failure. You've got to decide, is this irreconcilable? I think you have to actually figure out what's the probability of success with with that emerging leader. So it's very situational. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Can you give us, because I mean, you know, I love Chick-fil-A and the sandwiches are always hot. The uh, shakes are always cold. You know, and and you've got a, a quality concern. What would be some examples in leadership that you could think of where you could say, yeah, we're, we're going to give this to a rookie leader or we'll experiment on the side on these ones? Well, we had a, we had a team several years ago um, that we were forming to, to do, I would argue, some important work. Yeah. And we began to brainstorm candidates to lead the work. And we had about eight or ten names on the board. And I called time out. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. What do all these men and women have in common? People looked at me like, uh, <laughs> they all work here. I said, okay, what else? And like, nothing, <laughs> nothing. And I they're said, <laughs> they're, they're all senior leaders. And they said, what's your point? I said, okay, let's weigh the relative risk of this project. Okay, probably not. We're not betting the farm. We're not jeopardizing right. the brand. It's important work or we wouldn't do it. Is there an emerging leader that would benefit from this opportunity? And we identified someone who we think has a tremendous future, tremendous future, but had actually never led a team Hmm. and said, maybe this is a good chance to see if what this person actually does with direct reports, right? Their their growing reputation was based on their individual talent and skill. And I wasn't assuming that they could or couldn't lead but would this not be an opportunity? And we ended up giving that project to that emerging leader. Hmm. Okay. Those are some great examples. Um, what are some challenges that you guys have faced in trying to build leaders? Like we always talk about our success stories. You're pretty transparent, pretty honest and open. Where have you kind of hit some walls? Well, I think it starts even with individual leaders, the the barriers to personal growth they they tend to revolve around one of several uh, items if if not a combination sometimes it's just the priority they place mm-hmm. on it and I would argue that leader doesn't see their role clearly if they don't think personal growth and development is a priority I'm thinking you got to be really careful that you're not you're not giving yesterday's answers to today's questions if you're not right, if you're right. not learning and growing so sometimes it's the priority they pay, place on it. Uh, sometimes it's the pace of their life. Mm. Um, I think we can all get so busy that our own personal growth and development can fall to the back burner or, in fact, fall off the stove. Right. So priority, pace. Every now and then, I encounter a leader, it's a pride issue. And oh. thankfully, not often. But They want to know. They, they the, want to be the expert. Well, they, or... don't, they think they know enough. Yeah. They don't think they need to know anymore. Again, thankfully, I don't see a lot of that, but yeah. pride is an issue sometimes. And then often I'll see leaders that just don't have a plan. Mm. They've not thought strategically, and which I think we can help most leaders jump that hurdle because everything else in their life, they've got a plan. they got a plan with their personal trainer, and they got a, right. they got a plan for their department or their team or a plan for their organization because they say, well, you build a plan if something's important. Well, how about your continued growth and development and vitality and influence over time? That's pretty important. Let, let's build a plan there. Um, at the organization level, it's some of the same things. Does the organization make a priority of it? Is right. the organization moving at a pace where they've, they've actually lost perspective? 
is the organization prideful and they don't think it's necessary? Or maybe they just don't have a plan for growing leaders. Hmm. So it's it's solvable. How do you, and I've asked this of, of different guests before who've got a background in Chick-fil-A, how do you, uh, and I take it character is part of this, but how do you spot talent? How do you, because you talked even at the very beginning of this interview about finding great owner operators, and I've met a lot of your great owner operators. What are some selection criteria or filters that you've used to help you continually replenish the uh, the supply? Okay, of I want to give you a quick two part answer. Uh huh. When we're when we're talking about operators that we would partner with, we look for character, yeah. competence, and chemistry. And and with with a healthy dose of entrepreneurial spirit in the mix, and that's been our formula for forty plus years. So wow. that that's pretty much unchanged. But for those listening who are trying to get great entry level talent, uh, we just finished a project about two years ago. We we have uh, encountered the war for talent just like oh, yeah. everybody else. Now, we were late to that game for whatever reason, but it has become one of the top issues for the restaurant operators. And so we decided we would go out and purchase some research on what attracts top talent and share it with our operators. And we couldn't find any. We really? could not find any research. We started with Gallup, went to Aon, called Marcus Buckingham. I mean, did everything you would expect, talked to the academic people. We couldn't find any research on what attracts top talent. Now, there's work on what attracts leaders, and we know what we're looking for in leaders. But if you're looking for uh, top talent, yeah. frontline folks, we actually commissioned the research. Isn't that? And just to clarify terms, are you talking about the people who would just be your hourly employees at the store? Or the operator's employees, right? The all operator's those, employees, All those correct. employees work yeah. for the operator. But yeah, you're talking about frontline workers. Yeah, frontline workers. So we're not talking about C-suite people here. Right. You're just like... And that makes a difference because they are, you know, if I go and buy a spicy chicken sandwich, which is my favorite, I Thank don't have you. a good experience right. with that person, I might not be coming back. Right. Okay. So we clarify. commissioned that work yeah. and, and we looked beyond our industry and we looked all 50 states. We looked age 15 to 70, um, multifaceted, multi-tiered, hired really smart people that right. to figure all this out. And had over 7,000 folks in this uh, survey of what attracts top talent. And we actually discovered there were three things. This is after your basic needs are met, yeah. right? There are some things that top talent and typical talent want, right? They want a safe place to work. They want fair wages and so forth and so on. Right. But we discovered that top talent wants a better boss. They care who they work for. Now, you say, well, doesn't everybody want a better boss? Well, at some level, but it's a condition of employment for top talent. Right. They, right. they they care who they work for. They want someone who's engaged. They want someone who can lead well. They want someone who sees them as a human being. Hmm. It, it's, it's nothing shocking there. Yeah. But the fact that was the first thing. They want a better boss. The second, they want a brighter future. Hmm. They actually come into the interview with a different set of questions than typical talent. They're saying, how will I learn? How will I grow? How will I be challenged? Hmm. It's a it's a different mindset. And again, this is even at the minimum wage or oh, entry absolutely. level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is really important. Absolutely. Wow. And then third and finally is they want to be part of a bigger vision. 
they want to make a difference. And so uh, as we learned those things, we, we ended up discovering what I would call an unintended uh, conclusion because we had many of our restaurants that said they were doing those three things. They were working to be the better boss. And that's just not the senior leader. That's all the leaders. And they were trying to help people create a brighter future. And they were actually trying to be part of something bigger. But they said it's not working. And what we discovered is the, the fourth uh, of, the, of the findings is that you actually have to tell that story. That people have to know that okay. in order to want to come work for you. The work we did, we, it actually became a book as well called Talent Magnet. Mm. Well, if, if the magnet's so tiny, it, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't have any pull. Yeah. And so if awareness is really low, then, then nobody's going to know that they can come to you to get what they're looking for. So for many, many leaders, I would say inside and outside Chick-fil-A, the big aha was we've got to proactively tell the story, the story that we've already written, just no one knows it. So how do you tell that story? Well, there are many, 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 many ways. Uh, the, the, the most obvious these days is through social media. Mm. The numbers are staggering about how many people will go to a website when they're looking for a job or for an organization. And I asked people this, I said, how, how long does it take somebody on your website to determine that you're a talent magnet? How many clicks? Can they even figure that out at all, that you're going to provide a better boss, a brighter future, and a bigger vision? So I hmm. said, well, that's not in my website. It's like, well, that's actually what yeah, they're yeah, looking yeah, for. Yeah. So as crazy as that sounds, or Instagram. So you changed your website. Well, we've got there. There are lots of people who've changed their websites, and I had one uh, leader who told me uh, it was a Chick Fil A leader, an operator who used to put pictures of the food on Instagram. He said, mm -hmm. "I don't do that anymore." He said, "Everybody on my Instagram site knows we sell food." He's using it to tell the story that top talent would be attracted to. Wow! So that is that's one way. Another way is using your own employees as ambassadors. Mm -hmm. That if you've got men and women who've bought into that story, help them understand how to articulate that to their friends and family and associates and, and others. Um, so any number of ways. But you got to yeah. be proactive. You got to be strategic. You got to be thoughtful. You got to say, okay, here's our story. We want to get it out there. And um, it's what they want. It's so interesting, you know, because this is, this is a passion point of mine, too, about creating a, a great workplace. But everybody, uh, I used to assume, I won't say everybody, I used to assume, you know, if you could just pay top dollar, you're going to get the top people. And of course, the more I've read, the more I've lived, the more I've learned. Yes, you have to have a living wage. You have to, you have to, you can't pay people horribly or you'll end up. But I mean, you pay people adequately, you pay people well, and that's actually not the top motivator. Well, and here's what we've discovered. There is an allure of of top dollar. There's no oh, yeah. question. And what what has happened? And I've talked to leaders around the country who've who've tried this. They just raise their wage, and they may actually attract some top talent. Right. And then top talent gets in there, and they find either they don't have a better boss, they don't have a brighter future, or they're not part of a bigger vision, and they leave. Wow. So so it it actually could fuel turnover. It's not that you again can't put the next shiny object out there in terms of a paycheck and get some people, but are they going to stay? You mentioned the talent war. Has it been hard? And again, you've got four decades here. Is it harder now to attract and keep great people than it was 10, 15 years ago? 
Well, our operators clearly would say it is in, at the restaurant level. Yeah. Uh, very, we're very thankful that our retention rate for our operators and our staff, I think, is still hovering around 96, 97% and has for 40 years. But um, it was operators that surfaced this issue as being one of their increasing pain points and challenges, which is why we began to do the work on it. Right. And, and that's the cry you hear everywhere. I just can't find enough people. I mm-hmm. just can't find good people. Right. That's I've heard that my whole life. My parents ran a business, the whole deal. Right. Yeah. OK. So you got a new book coming out. It is really in many ways on turnaround which I think is encouraging because you can plant something, but 18 months into the plant, you're already fixing what's broken. And most leaders are probably trying to improve or turn things around. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I'll try to give it to you quick because this is the fifth book in a five-book series. Right. So just a little context. I'll, I'll do this quickly. About a decade ago, we started trying to figure out what do the best organizations in the world have in common? And we labeled that a high-performance organization. And we spent time with all the usual suspects and and from the Navy SEALs and and other business icons, uh, business icons that you would imagine, and even world championship sailing teams. I mean, we Mm. went across the board because we said, if this is universally true, then we'll find application in our business. So we started that work. And um, that actually became um, a book called Chestnut Checkers. And it outlines the four things that all high-performance organizations have in common. We were thankful it was only four. and Because w- if it were 12 or 15, we'd be in trouble. But it was only four. And so what we've done since then is we've done research and resources to support each of those four moves. Right. The first is they bet on leadership. The second is they act as one. The third is they win the heart. And fourth, and finally, they excel at execution. So the the turnaround you're talking about is predicated on the fact if an organization is well-led, the people are aligned, and they're engaged, then you're positioned to excel at execution. And greatness hinges on execution. Right. And so this final book is on execution. We spent the last several years trying to figure out, okay, we know what the prerequisites are, but what can leaders do that will increase their effectiveness when it comes to execution. And that's the book that's um, just being released. Well, you tell it as a leadership fable. I don't want to be a spoiler alert here, Guy, because it actually it's a really good story. Yes. I was saying before we started recording, I'm always, you know, I'm the points guy. I'm always envious of people who can do a leadership fable like you and Patrick Lencioni and others, Ken Blanchard. Oh, I wish I could write like that, but I can't. Well, I wish I could write like real writers. So, you know, (laughs) there you go. But it's a great story. It's about a football team that didn't have a very good record. New coach comes into town, and all of a sudden it's a new day. Same players. Right. Same players. Right. Radically different results. And the parallel story is of the business that is applying those same principles. Exactly. Yeah. So you want to walk us through just some of the core elements of execution, because I think so many— I mean, I don't know. We we haven't pulled our listeners because that's hard to do. I mean, we have rough psychographics, demographics. But my guess is we're disproportionate number of visionaries listen to this podcast. Right. Right? Because that's what leaders do. We're visionaries. And then we speak it. We think it's Genesis 1. And I said it, so it's going to happen. Right? Leadership always begins with a picture of the future. Yep. And then it doesn't happen. 
and then we just get frustrated and we get mad and then we don't know what to do. Execution is a challenge for, right. for a lot of visionaries. So you want to walk us through, because uh, this turns things around, right? Because then you sure. think, well, I'll just go start something new and it'll be better. Right. Not necessarily. Right. Because you may repeat the same mistakes <laughs> of your past 100%. efforts. Sure. I think there's a tendency for us oh, all yeah. to do that. Oh, yeah. um, it goes back to to the bigger picture that if an organization doesn't have adequate leadership capacity, now this isn't intended as a process model, right. but it's still built on leadership. We mm. can't find a high-performance organization in the world that's not well-led. Can't find one. Can't <laughs> yes. find one. And that's not just the senior leader. That's leaders at all level because yes. we've actually piloted this execution content in about 70 of our restaurants. And uh, saw some phenomenal results in some places. And in other places, they struggled a little bit. And and one of the challenges in some of those situations was a leadership challenge Mm -hmm. because it requires leadership to align people, which is that second move to act as one. And then to win the heart, to help engage people, that requires leadership. So you see why yeah. leadership is foundational. It's the leaders that are aligning people and engaging people and positioning them to execute. Yeah. And so um, it, those are the prerequisites. Once you get to execution, I think the one idea I will share with you today for your listeners is that it begins with individual decisions. See, some of the other work that we've done, we've talked to leaders In this case, we're talking to the entire organization, and you can't achieve the levels of execution that we're advocating unless individual contributors make a decision. Right. And we we actually call that first decision pursue mastery, Hmm. pursue mastery. And we make it very clear that that is not the expectation. We think that's a heavy burden, but it is the goal. Right, And if you can help people pursue the goal and make progress toward the goal, they will thank you for that because, because the right goals inspire as opposed to expectations that can pull people down, particularly if it's an expectation that's not grounded in reality. You know, we're not perfect. Mm-hmm. No one's perfect. So why put that on people? I actually uh, learned this from some time I spent with the Clemson football program. And they don't expect their players to make their block on every play. Yeah, that's strange, right? Because you Well, think I thought so. They said, no, they said it's the goal, and we're going to help you work to achieve the goal. But why would we put an expectation on you if it's unrealistic? Because that's a burden. So where's the— <laughs> Because that's really interesting. I remember that from the book, too, that, hey, it's not going to be 100% all the time. And, of course, there's almost no team that, it, you know, nobody bats a 1,000. Right. There's no team that's, right. you know, 100 no. It's just it's not life, and that's not the way it's going to be with your team. But I think a lot of leaders worry that if they acknowledge that, they're, they're going to let their foot off the gas pedal. So Loft, Lofty goals inspire people. Mm. Now you got to help them. It's it's yeah. you got to encourage them. You got to challenge. Them. You got to hold them accountable. You got to have the right tools. You got to have the right resources. You got to have coaching. Yeah. I mean, it's it it's a team effort. So that's actually the big insight. I think um, one of the insights from this research is that you can't impose the level of execution that we're talking about. You can lift people to it, right? But you can't impose it. 
So in your book, the coach comes in, basically the same players. He puts in some brand new rules and a lot of execution. And that has to happen in the company as well. But um, how do you know the difference? Because, you know, you think whether you have an organization of 10, 100, 1,000, we can all think, well, we don't have to worry about these guys. They're already self-performer. They're high performers. They're self-starters. You kind of have your middle. But then you've got that lower quarter, that lower third. And obviously not everyone's going to make it. How do you know whether someone who might be a low performer right now has the potential to become a high performer? Back to almost necessary endings, right? Like, where, where is that line in your mind? I have no idea. That's kind of the answer. Um, here, here's the way we think about it, that we encourage leaders to focus on the process. Mm. And so when you find someone who's not performing, let's right. focus on the process. Right. And actually, there, there are multiple inputs. So recruiting, selection, orientation, training, coaching, you know, accountability, and say, what is the problem here? Maybe this, maybe this person is not a good fit. Maybe they're in the wrong role. Maybe the expectations aren't clear. I mean, and so let's start by eliminating the process drivers of that poor performance. And then at the end of the day, that person may not need to work for you. Right. I mean, that's the necessary ending when you say it's, you know, we've done what we can. Now, I will, I will quickly say that we've done quite a bit of work on engagement as well. And the first place I, I challenge leaders to look when you find people who are not engaged is to look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's the rare exception when it's the person. It's generally the leader or the system that has been created. Well, Rarely I, is it the person. Now, sometimes it is. Yeah, yeah. Bad fit, bad selection, bad hire. And then I think you, you need to deal with that. Well, and sometimes there is no process, right? Like when well, you're saying run them through the process, I think one of the stories in the book is there was homework. And not all, surprise, surprise, not all the high school students completed the homework. Well, it's kind of a selection filter. Right. It's like there was the, there was the process. Exactly. Obviously, you don't want to be on the team. Right. Because you didn't do the homework or right. whatever that would be. But I think with a lot of leaders, it's like, we don't really have a process. I'm just mad at you because you didn't do what well, I wanted you to do. That's my point of look in the mirror. So if you don't have a process, it's like, well, now, wait a minute. This person is unable, uh, apparently unable to do this job. Yeah. Well, how clear are we on what the job is? Yeah. And how clear were we when we selected this person? And did we have evidence that they would be a good fit. So again, you may have to you may have to let that person go, but but fix the process so you don't yeah. repeat this again and that you have real clarity on what is the role, what are the expectations. But even then it goes to were they oriented well? Were they trained well? Are they being coached? Do they have the resources they need? So I'm I'm slow to move to it is the problem or the fault of the person. That's fair. So you're speaking to some leaders who are going, I think I have a problem with execution. What's a good first step for them? If they're trying to turn things around and they're realizing, oh, yeah, that might be me. What's a, what's a good step for them? What, what should they look at first? How aligned are your leaders? How clear are you 
with your leaders. And there's a simple, there are any number of ways to, to get at this, but there's a simple test. Uh, ask each of your leaders around your leadership table, hand out a three by five card if you want to go old school and say, write down our top three priorities for the year or our number one goal for the year. If you're more advanced, ask them to send you a text and then compare your answers. And if, and if, and if you're not aligned with your senior leaders, it will be impossible to be aligned with the organization. Wow. Uh, I referenced Howard Hendricks earlier. Uh, he used to say, if, if there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pew. <laughs> it's, it's not going to get clearer. Yes. And so I think anybody who's trying to, to make significant progress in an organization in any area, start with alignment around your leadership table. Hmm. It, it has to begin there. That's a good word, Mark. So I want to pull the camera lens back a little bit. We started talking about Chick-fil-A in general and your leadership. But we've talked about change, constant learning, what you're learning, how you're growing, how you're scaling, all those things. And yet at the heart of it is that chicken sandwich that was pioneered 70 years ago? Yes, sir. 80, a long time, long time ago. When you, when you, from where you sit, when you think of Chick-fil-A as a whole, what things must change and what things must never change? Because it's your leadership, Chick-fil-A's leadership has been a constant thing of we're changing this, but we're not changing that. Where, what are the things that are just core and then what else has to keep changing? Well, I think we've, we've already talked about it. I think what, what has to continue to change is our leaders have to continue to learn and grow. Mm. I think I think that's the ultimate competitive advantage that you can learn and apply quicker than your competition. Mm. Our leaders have got to continue to learn and grow. That must change. We must be smarter. If we want to have a our uh, president said not long ago, he said if you want a 10% increase next year, you better grow more than 10% personally. Right. So that has got to change. What can never change? I think I think the the operator at the center of our business, because it's that local ownership. I mean, they don't technically own the business, but we want them to behave like an owner. They are our secret sauce. They're our competitive advantage. We've got some high caliber men and women leading these restaurants around the nation. And I mentioned it earlier, then they tend to recruit better. They tend to execute better. Uh, they tend to offer our customers a better experience. And so the operator model is right there at the center of our success. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, we're here at what a lot of people would say is Chick-fil-A headquarters in Atlanta. We call it but the you support don't, center. You don't call it that. That's my point. <laughs> Tell me why. Because it's not headquarters. Well, it, it's built on this idea that we're here to serve those operators. I, I know several years ago I had a time, uh, chance to spend some time up at Harvard. And I remember after a course— on strategy, which I'll I'll confess was one of the most confusing things. I mean, I just I didn't understand any of it. It was <laughs> it was it was like oh my goodness! It's like I guess I don't understand strategy. It was it was mind boggling actually. <laughs> and they asked me then to come up and explain Chick Fil A strategy, and I'm going, uh oh, like after I don't know what you just said for the last two hours. And so I drew a smiley face of an operator with a bunch of arrows leading to it. And, and labeled them all the different departments and functions of our 
business. And I said, we exist to serve these men and women that run these restaurants and and then they make more money and we make more money and it all seems to work. And that was all I had to say about that. <laughs> That's great, Mark. So we're here to support them. Did you get a response to that? Well, mixed. <laughs> Some thought it was simplistic <laughs> and others thought it was genius. And so I chose to focus on those that said it was genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would do that. And I'm, I'm sure some of the critics weren't making uh, an, an organization with the impact of Chick-fil-A or making $10 billion a year either. So. Well, I just thought that yeah. my slide, you know, my, my font is a hard to read, personal handwritten font. <laughs> And um, the the smiley face, I think, if I'd had a PowerPoint, they might have liked it better. But it was just me drawing on a flip chart. That's great. Uh, what would, as you look ahead to the future at Chick Fil A, what would you say some of the biggest challenges you're facing right now are? Capacity. Um, we are so fortunate that the business continues to grow, yeah. and we have got to find ways to continue to offer a great experience under increasing constraints. Mm. Just the physical size of the parking lot and the size of the kitchen and the size of the dining room. And so we have begun um, doing things like the app where some people can order in advance, which is right. great. And they like it and we like it because that's less people to stand in front of the cash registers. Uh -huh. uh, we're now um, experimenting with delivery through uh, third party and um, where we would do the delivery because then people can enjoy the great taste of Chick-fil-A without having to physically come into the restaurant. Mm. So we're, we're thankful for the success and the growth and the business, but capacity has become uh, a challenge for us. And we want to make it as easy, that we want to make it as easy as possible for people to eat Chick Fil A. Too many people are coming, kind of thing. Well, I don't think capacity. I would say it that way. No, but but yeah, we want to make room for everybody. And yeah. again, if you can't find a place to park, or if the lines are too long, then you might not eat with us. And so we're that is the challenge we're working on right now. And even behind the curtain, we're trying to be sure that our supply chain can keep up because wow. uh, the supply chain in our industry, the fast food industry, was not built for the kind of volumes that we're doing. And so um, we're having to figure out how do you how do you keep product in the restaurants? Wow! So it's, those are good problems. They're to great have. problems. To but have. I mean, everything down to where do you get your chickens, potatoes, all those things, right? And then how do you get them to the restaurant? Even if yeah. our partners can yeah. produce them, there's then the supply chain mechanism of of transporting and, and physically getting it to the restaurant. So we're working on all of those things. I don't mean this in the narrowest sense, so I hope it comes across right and I can clarify it a little bit. But, you know, we all have competitors, right? So you could say it could be Popeyes or it could be – that's not where this question is going. What do you think your greatest competition is or your greatest threat is, so to speak? And that could be internal or external. Like if you would say, you know what, the real – because even as a church leader for 20 years, I always said to people, our competition is not other churches. You know what it is? It's a beach on a sunny day. It's a warm bed in the winter. That's our competition. And, and it's our own inability to, yeah. to reach more people. So I'm talking more in that, what would you say your greatest competition is? Well, I think I'll give you a two-part answer. Um, it's really anyone who serves good food fast. Because mm -hmm. our customers, we continue to talk to them, and they're generally in a hurry. Yes. So... And, and, if, and if they think we're too busy, they may go to any number of other restaurants that they perceive can serve them good food fast. Mm. 
But I write about it in the new book, and I don't I don't say this on behalf of the organization, but it, it fit the story quite well, and I'm reflecting on this, that maybe the real competition, the real challenge might be arrogance or complacency. And we just we just want we just want to defeat that. We want to keep learning. We want to keep growing. We want to keep adding value. We want to keep serving more and more customers. So, yeah, anybody who serves fast food could get your your money tomorrow at lunchtime. Right. But we, we don't want to be our own worst enemy. Hmm. Yeah, to, they, they say sometimes you're – and you make a great product. I'm a consumer <laughs> where I can be. Thank you. Uh, but in in some respects, you're selling speed, Right. And cleanliness and quality. And it's not uh, yes, just food. Uh, yes, yes, all all of the above. I mean, people yeah. want great food. They want it fast and accurate. And and we believe they want genuine hospitality. Now, hmm. they don't expect genuine hospitality everywhere. But right. we we have found that they value that. And and we made some of your listeners may know we made a a strategic decision almost fifteen years ago that we wanted to add a hospitality component. So right. the fact that you have great experiences in our restaurants and folks generally say my pleasure when you say thank yes. you, that's not an accident. Yeah. We believe that people would value that and and it's the way we wanted to show up for our customers. And so we said, you know, we've had a competitive advantage, we believe, for years that was based on the food. But you know, food, you can copy food. Mm-hmm. And so let's see if we can up the ante a little bit and, and keep great food at the foundation and be sure the place is clean. But let's let's layer in this genuine hospitality. How are you driving innovation now? Because the double drive-through, that was a Chick-fil-A innovation. You're not the only one who does it anymore, but right. many Chick-fil-A's now have the double drive-through. People coming to you to take your order, whether that's a notepad or an iPad. I think that was a Chick-fil-A thing. Your uh, milkshakes, which mm-hmm. are great, was an owner-operator uh, innovation and so on. How how do you continue to encourage innovation in those areas? Well, corporately, we made a decision a decade ago or so that we wanted to strengthen our innovation muscle. And we've built an innovation center, and we've done training for staff. And even today, we have... Um, innovation workshops and we do innovation showcases and we're trying to decentralize innovation so that innovation is happening all across the business and what that tends to do is it spins up more innovation do you have a and and i don't know that this is an answerable question but do you have a filter or any filters that tell you oh this is really great like the milkshake might have been one of those things where you thought that's really off mission like we don't you know, we're not Dairy Queen. We we do chicken sandwiches. How is there a filter where you go? Because, you know, most leaders sitting in a seat are like, there's no shortage of ideas. And you can get so many that you're no longer even about your core business. So how, what has helped you make those decisions about what to adopt and what not to adopt? Well, I don't want to make it sound too precise because innovation is messy. Yeah. And you, you got to try a lot of things generally. But we have a rigorous planning process, and we're more and more comfortable with prototyping and mm. pilots and tests. And let's let's 
let's let the customers help us figure this so out. So you might roll it out in a single store or market? Let's let, well, yes, but we'll let customers taste it before it ever goes to store and markets. We bring oh, customers yeah. in on a new product. Oh, okay. um, but we talk to operators. We get customers involved. We certainly you know, get the finance people involved to be sure that it, it makes sense from a financial standpoint. But we're more and more comfortable with trying things and then uh, take them through our planning process. And we don't fund everything. And some things we'll put on hold and some things will slow down and some things will accelerate. So it's it's an elaborate process. We have a lot of people who get involved to try mm-hmm. and make those decisions and we do the best we can. Yeah. What do you think the greatest opportunity is for Chick-fil-A right now as you look ahead? Well, I, along with many, many others, are excited about international. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a big world out there. There's <laughs> yes. a big world yeah. out there. Yeah. And Canada got to go you know, first. Absolutely. Thank uh, you for that. Yes. And so we've got a team. We've just added a new member to our executive committee, staffed that team well, and they're negotiating on sites in uh, a number of countries right now. Uh, we've made a commitment to international. And I think about the almost, how many, 7 billion people yeah. that don't live yeah. in the U.S. Uh, I'm excited about international. Well, and as I shared with some of your team before, when you were looking at Canadian expansion, I think your greatest thing, just as a Canadian, I think one of the greatest innovations is the way you treat people and customer service. Because I don't know, it's just, you know, the bar is fairly low and I think you, you set it so high. But in a lot of places, you basically get grunts, eye rolls, um, people who are, and and I feel bad for the employee because clearly they're not having a good time. Clearly they did not wake up excited to go to work this morning. And the way you're able to reproduce that culture uh, is fantastic. And uh, and the chicken's pretty good too. So Mark, anything else you want to share? Chicken's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate uh, those kind words about the chicken. I've, I've been enjoying it for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, plan to continue to do so. I would just encourage leaders, um, you know, you are the architect of the future. Mm. Don't, don't miss that opportunity. You know, what do you, what story do you want to write, right? Yeah. What, what, what do you want to build? Do you want to build a high-performance organization? It is within reach. You, you, have, you have to decide. And I, I think when leaders lead, a lot of good things happen. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit more about the book and then where people can track with you online as well. Okay. Win every day. It's coming. Um, I think it's March, which I think first week in March around that time. I think that's right. And so first week in March, um, any proceeds that I receive, I donate to charity. Done that wow. with all the books for 20 years. And so uh, excited for the opportunity to share what we've been learning. And, you know, maybe it'll maybe it'll serve leaders. And that would be our hope that um, you'll find something to help your organization take a step forward. Are you active on social, and if so, where? Yes, uh, highperformanceleadership.com. Ah, great. Highperformanceleadership.com is uh, is where you can find me. All right. Mark, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Well, as usual, we have show notes if you want to drill down a little bit more or get some free transcripts to uh, study this and some of the principles in it. You can find that at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 346. So I've got a what I'm thinking about segment. I'm just going to share some honest thoughts about uh, what's going on with race and honestly how someone in my position might be able to respond 
in a helpful way. So I know that's something a lot of us are thinking about. I'll be talking about that in a few minutes, but uh, I'm very excited because our spring archive is finally coming to air this summer <laughs> in light of the coronavirus and all the new episodes we did. But Near AL is somebody that I have really appreciated. He wrote uh, a great book a few years ago that took Silicon Valley by storm. It's called Hooked. And uh, now he's got a brand new book and it's called Indistractable. And it's basically how to keep yourself from being completely consumed by technology. And uh, well, it's a fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt. If you're a member of the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club, one of the privileges is that when a new shipment of Christmas ornaments comes in in the middle of summer, you're invited to help unpack them and stock the shelves. I know, right? That's brilliant. <laughs> this is the incentive. Why? Well, because Bruce is going to be there and Marjorie is going to be there. And my friends that I've been interacting with throughout the year are going to be there. So the product is the Christmas ornaments, mm. but the service, why people keep coming back is for the interaction with their community. That's coming up next time. Subscribers, you get it automatically for free. Thank you to everybody who's leaving rating and reviews. Uh, if this episode is helpful, please share it on social media. And uh, yeah, use the show notes as well to uh, maybe study this with your team or dive a little bit deeper. We just want to bring you the best conversations in leadership, and that's what we're doing. Coming up, uh, for subscribers, just so you know, you got Patrick Lencioni coming up, Bob Goff, Danielle Strickland, Darius Daniels, Joe Saxton, Henry Cloud, Sam Collier, Levi Lusco, and so many more. And speaking of Sam Collier, uh, he is the inspiration for the What I'm Thinking About segment. So uh, this segment is brought to you by Promedia Fire. If you haven't yet booked your free digital strategy, go to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And it's brought to you by Financial Peace University. So you can help people leave money stress behind by leading a virtual Financial Peace University class. Register for their free webinar by texting CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33789. That's CAREY to 33789. So in today's What I'm Thinking About segment, I want to talk to you about the situation with uh, racial reconciliation in the United States and Canada around the world. Uh, we have seen a lot of things precipitated uh, by many deaths, but most notably over the last few months, uh, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, at, which was really just a gun down, and then the death of George Floyd, which precipitated rioting and peaceful protests. And uh, oh man, I'll tell you, it has been a, a time unlike any other. And I've sat down as a Caucasian leader and tried to think, okay, what can I do? And longtime listeners will know, uh, we've had, of course, numerous African-American guests and other guests, and we'll talk about reconciliation from time to time. And recently on Blackout Tuesday, I sat down with my good friend Sam Collier and we did an Instagram Live, which we will link to in the show notes that uh, you may want to have a look at. And uh, I just talked to Sam very honestly, and I want to share with you kind of openly and I think a bit vulnerably um, some of the, the questions and concerns that I have. And I, I started by saying to Sam, you know, probably the biggest fear I've got when I want to speak out and try to do the right thing and try to help the cause of uh, reconciliation is I'm just afraid as a white leader that I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to like misuse a hashtag or I, I'm going to say, I'm going to try to say something helpful and it's going to come out the wrong way and I'm going to get pummeled on my platform about it. And, you know, he said, yeah, Carrie, that's a very real risk. And Sam, as an African-American, said, yeah, I get beat up too. Like he says, uh, the people, some people think I'm, I'm, you know, 
not extreme enough because I support nonviolence. And then other people think, oh no, I've, I've gone too far. And uh, there's a number of leaders, I won't name them, but who have tried to speak out and they've had to take posts down. And you know what? There's part of me uh, deep down that you always want to say the right thing. I don't like criticism. You don't like criticism. But as Sam reminded me, it's far more important to do something than to do nothing because silence is deafening in a time like this. And so, you know, I was posting on social media. Uh, I'm talking about it here on the podcast and uh, because it's something I'm really committed to. I really believe the kingdom of God comes not just in the future, but it comes now. And we're all brothers and sisters. And Sam really opened up my eyes to some of the systemic problems and some of the conversations and dialogue I've had with African-American and also some of my Latino and Hispanic friends about what's going on, reading their posts and, and talking to them about it. You know, it's a very different experience. And I have a lot of friends who are police officers. There's a lot of good cops. But, you know, Sam pointed out, he said, you as a Caucasian person were raised to believe the police are there to protect you. And fundamentally, that's true. You know, if you're a teenager doing something you shouldn't be doing, of course, you're scared of the cops. But for the most part, you know, yeah, that's right. The police are here to protect me. And he said, I was raised as an African-American, Sam said, to believe that I have to protect myself from the police. And you're just far more likely to get pulled over. I watch videos with um, Tony Evans, the uh, preacher, saying, you know, he got pulled over for being in the, quote, wrong neighborhood. Mike Todd, who's been a, a guest a couple of times on the show this year, uh, talked in one of his videos about being pulled over for, <laughs> you know, being suspected because he bought a nice house in the, quote, wrong neighborhood just because of the color of his skin. And that's something I've never had to, to deal with. And so I think it's really important for those of us who have a platform. I think it's really important for those of us who have influence. And, and as Sam pointed out, if you have 100 followers on Instagram and you're white, you've got influence, you've got a voice, not only to say something, but also to do something as well. Uh, one of the things that can happen, particularly in the social media age, is that we do something for like hashtag Blackout Tuesday, and then we say, okay, well, I did my part, right? And it would have been easy to talk about something else today. It would be easy to ignore that in future episodes of this podcast. And I think, yeah, I just think we need to do better than that. I think we need to diversify the tables that we eat at. I think we need to have conversations and pursue relationships with people who don't look like us. You know, one of the, one of the things that was really a learning for me, because uh, I had a number of you who listened to this podcast reached out to me and said, hey, are you going to do anything about racial reconciliation? Of course I want to, but uh, I went back into my archives to uh, find some episodes where we talked about it. And there are some episodes. We'll actually link to those episodes in the show notes. But um, I don't always talk about it with African-American guests. And I said to Sam, and this is just like, I'm being really transparent here and really open, just taking you sort of behind the curtain. I'm like, I was told by an African-American friend that one of the best things you could do sometimes when you interview a person of color is not to talk about their race, but just to value them for their ideas. And I won't name this friend, but he just said to me, he said, you know, it's very rare for an African-American person to have a white person like yourself who's known in the leadership space just say, wow, that is a brilliant idea and not add an asterisk like, you know, for an African-American or for whatever. And he goes, so when you value our ideas, you honor us. And so I've been very intentional about that. And I went back over some episodes, the transcripts for uh, times where I've had, you know, African-American leaders that I really respect. And I'm like, oh yeah, we didn't talk about 
uh, racial reconciliation or race relations in that episode. And I asked Sam about that. And he said, you know, and I never thought about this. I just never thought about it. Sam said, well, there are some platforms where I have to make sure I don't talk about being black because that would actually make me lose points. And then I thought, oh gosh, I was trying to help and I, I didn't, maybe I didn't help. Maybe, maybe that worked against me. And so uh, I think one of the principles moving forward is when I talk to someone who is not Caucasian, I'll just say, hey, do you want to talk about being Hispanic? Do you want to talk about being black? Do you want to talk about that at all? And give them the option rather than making the assumption myself. And I think that's a really good principle for all of us who have influence or power. And because you're a leader, you have influence or power is uh, I was really trying to help. And obviously, you know, there were probably times where uh, my idea that I wasn't going to talk about race did the opposite impact, had the opposite impact. So I'm going to be more sensitive to that. And for those of us who have the influence, for those of us who have a little bit of a platform, it's going to be really important, I think, to listen with an open heart and open mind and, uh, and to also take some risks. I mean, say some things. And if I, I watch some, and I won't, again, name them, because I haven't had this conversation, but there was one guy with hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers, a white preacher who, young guy, uh, just really came out on the side of racial reconciliation and lost tens of thousands, perhaps 100,000 followers as a result. And you know what? That's okay. Because as Sam said to me in this Instagram conversation we had, he said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. And I think that's right. And so we all have a role to play. I think that's personal. I think it's using your platform. I think it impacts what you say and how you say it. And occasionally you're going to get it wrong. But I need to remind myself not to let my fear of like reading angry emails or seeing points about you didn't say this right, you didn't say that right, not get in my way. And just to make sure I stand with the people that uh, I love, the people God created. And yeah, we want to see the kingdom of God come uh, not just in the future, but now. So anyway, you may have some thoughts on that. Feel free to leave a comment in the show notes or hit me up on social. Uh, I'm trying to figure this out with uh, with all of you. And in particular, uh, I would love to hear from African-Americans, from uh, Latino, Latina, Hispanic, and other people, indigenous people. Uh, I got an email the other day from someone who is an indigenous American who said she's been listening to this podcast for a number of years it's really helped her in her leadership. She's married to a man who is uh, has a black, I think, father and a white mother. And uh, they have really, really enjoyed the conversations on this podcast. It's helped them in their leadership. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you on this. My email, by the way, is carrie at carrienewhoff.com. Love you guys. And uh, we're all trying to make a difference together, right? In these really unusual times. So we're back next time with a fresh episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.